Uh, we can turn back to the chapter we read there from uh, Jonah, and we can just look at some lessons from it. I've called it the path of and from rebellion. Not much is known about Jonah apart from this book, although he is mentioned in 2 Kings chapter 14 and verse 25. And there it says about um, King Jeroboam II, it says about him, he restored the border of Israel from Libo Hamath, as far as the Sea of the Arabah, according to the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, which he spoke by his servant Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet who was from Gath Hefer. For the Lord saw that the affliction of Israel was very bitter, for there was none left, bond or free, and there was none to help Israel. So at that stage in Israel's history, uh, when things were very low, spiritually speaking, and the man that was sent by God to announce great days were coming was Jonah. So Jonah's prediction came true and the reign of Jeroboam II and the geographical extent of Israel was then at its greatest. So Jonah had been used by God to announce great events. We're told he was from Gath Hefer. That lo location may not jump out of us, out to us, sorry, but it was actually three miles from Nazareth. So it's um, virtually the case that um, Jesus would have been aware of that. And indeed, jo um, Jonah's tomb is in Gath Hefer. The church father, Jerome, I forget what century he lived in, but he actually Jonah. And therefore, it's equally probable that Jesus would have seen the tomb of Jonah. And be surprising if he hadn't, if it's only three miles from Nazareth. And maybe that's why he spoke about Jonah when he said to the describing his death that even as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the fish, so he would be three nights and three days and three nights in the depths of the earth. But anyway, that's Jonah. Quite an interesting thing about Jonah being from Gath Hefer in, in um, Galilee. Because one day the Pharisees said to Nicodemus, uh, when Nicodemus was attempting to stand up for Jesus, the Pharisees said to him, don't you know, and he, of course he was the teacher of Israel, and 
uh, as John calls him. He doesn't say our teacher of Israel. He's the teacher of Israel. And uh, they say to him, the teacher of Israel, don't you know? Search and look. Throughout of Galilee comes no prophet. But Jonah came from Galilee. So it actually tells us that they either didn't regard him as a prophet, or perhaps more likely didn't like the message of his book. But they were wrong, because a prophet did come from Galilee. Jonah. And so here is um, Jonah here sent to Nineveh. Now it's there are several books in the Old Testament deal with Nineveh. And um, last time I think we thought of Nahum. And of course his book is about Nineveh as well. But there's a century in between Jonah and Nahum. So the messages are not sent to the same people. And it's always important to remember that. It's like um, the gospel coming to, say, Britain in the year 1900. But a century later, it's not the same people, is it? And um, I think we've got a tendency at times to blend generations and turn them all into one generation. But Jonah's ministry is about a hundred years before Nahum's. And therefore, in a sense, there's not much of a connection between them except that in both cases what the prophets said came true. Jonah's message to Nineveh came true and so did Nahum's message to Nineveh. God's word always comes true. <clears throat> I wonder why um, God wanted Jonah to go to Nineveh. I mean, God has got his own estimation of Nineveh. He tells us that there in, in verse 2. It's a great city. And we know something about its size, because we're told later on in the book that it, um, it took Jonah, I think, three days to walk through it. I mean... How far could we walk in three days? Even at a normal speed, how far could we walk? We could walk quite far, couldn't we? We could walk perhaps 50 miles. Some people might even walk 100 miles. But the fact is, it was a very great city. And we're even told later on about something of the population of the size of the city. It had 120,000 infants. We're told that in the last verse of the book. God tells Jonah 
exactly how many infants are in the city. Which is a reminder to us that if God is interested in us, it's never mere surface knowledge. He is concerned about them. A great city. We're also told that God says it's an evil city. And of course, I wonder what comes into mind when we think of the word evil. I mean, the word evil is, uh, in some ways, it's a very graphic word. But in other ways, it's a kind of vague word, isn't it? We can just say it because we don't have anything else to say. I wonder what was meant by it being evil. Was it evil in its intentions? Or evil in its practices? Perhaps both. But although it was an evil city, God wanted Jonah to go there. Why did God send um, Jonah to Nineveh? Well, I suppose one reason could be an object lesson to Israel. I mean, Israel, despite the good things that God had done through it in that prophecy um, about Jeroboam, the Israel hadn't turned from idolatry. Idolatrous practices were rampant in Israel. You can read about that in Second Kings. I mean, it's reckoned, for example, that um, Jonah lived at the same time as Elisha. So we want to know what the times were like. Just read about Elisha. And uh, idolatry. Nineveh is a center of idolatry. They've got their gods. Indeed, the book of Jonah, in many ways, is about a battle between the God and the other God. Because we even see that with the sailors in the boat. If Nineveh, the message that is blunt, it's quite blunt that's given to Nineveh, isn't it? 30 days and you'll be destroyed. If that um, happened, Israel would see what happens to idolatrous nations. On the other hand, if Nineveh repents, Israel would see the benefits of repentance. So that could be one lesson why God sent um, Jonah to Nineveh, an object lesson to Israel. I don't, I don't think that's particularly strange. I think that happens still today. God does something in the middle of nowhere, we might say. Shows his, either his gracious power, or it might show his acts of judgment 
Who are they for? Well, one group they're for is the church. Just to learn what God might do either in blessing or in judgment. So Nineveh would have been a good object lesson. A second reason I kind of mentioned earlier, but it was a battle between the God and alternative gods. And of course that battle is still going on. It describes the whole of human history. The war between the God and alternative gods. A third lesson, of course, is, and it's a wonderful lesson, that the wicked can receive mercy. Nineveh, because of its size, may have been the location with the greatest accumulation of evil in the world at that time. As you go for your three-day walk through it, what do you see on each step that you take? Wickedness. Imagine going to Nineveh and walking along the same streets after they had repented. It would be a marvelous sight, wouldn't it? But... It's a reminder, God says, the Lord God, merciful and gracious. And, you know, sometimes it's not right to say God has tendencies. But from a human point of view, it almost looks as if sometimes he chooses the worst place to send his blessing. I mean, around about A.D. 33, what city had committed the greatest sin? Well, the answer to that question is Jerusalem. And to which city does God send the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost? To the worst city. God has got tendency as part of God to do that. And therefore, we can expect him to do it. And maybe he is doing it today. I mean, take any city in the world. Its ecclesiastical structures may be empty. But that is no proof that God is doing nothing. God could be doing things in countless streets that organized religion knows nothing about. And Nineveh is a reminder to us that God can work and show mercy in unlikely places. And the fourth reason, of course, is that God always remembers the covenant he made with Abraham. And the covenant made with Abraham was, through your descendants, all the nations of the world will be blessed. So Israel 
was to be a blessing to the nations. So if blessing is going to come to Nineveh, where is it going to come from? It must come from Israel. And Jonah was given this wonderful opportunity to bring the fulfillment, the partial fulfillment of that promise to Abraham, to Nineveh. So that's just some reasons why he went there. I'd like us to think about uh, the rejected call, all very quickly, the resulting crisis, and his rebellious counsel. The rejected call. Well, as we think of Jonah, his call is very sudden, isn't it? There's no hint anywhere that, <clears throat> that Jonah had any training for this particular task. Furthermore, there's actually no hint anywhere that he had any interest in doing this. All of a sudden, God's call just came to him. Not only was there his own personal um, uh, lack of interest or so on, but he had no previous example to follow. He couldn't go down to some library somewhere and pick up a book and say, oh, here, so-and-so did this before me. I'll just imitate him. He couldn't do that, could he? And he, even his knowledge of God didn't help him. Because he says towards the end of the book, when he's moaning about the fact that Nineveh repented, he says to God, I knew this is the very thing that you would do. And therefore that's why I didn't want to go. His, his instructions of God didn't really help him. So his awareness of God. But that's quite an extraordinary thing, isn't it? He knew the Almighty God, and that comes out very obvious in this chapter, that his awareness of the power of God was a barrier to his thinking about what God could do. He just didn't want to do it. He's, he, initially, his message, go and tell them in 30 days is going to be destroyed. Well, there's no offer of mercy there, is there? You would think that Jonah would have been, because he's got this kind of nationalistic problem. He thinks God's blessings are limited to the geographical area. And we see that when he jumps on the boat. He thinks if he can get away from Israel, that gets him away from God's activity. His mind is limited to God working in the geographical area that the Israelites had and you'd have thought that his um, message to Nineveh would have suited him in 30 days you'd be destroyed but he suspected didn't he that God was going to encourage these Ninevites to repent and he didn't like it I wonder if that spirit is still around. That we're selective in who we want to be converts. Imagine coming to the 
Passover. The year after the revival in Nineveh. And all these crowds come up from Nineveh as proselytes. Jonah was certainly selective in who he wanted to know God's blessing. And anyway, when he got the call, just instantly dismissed it. Stood up to the Almighty God and said, I'm not going. I mean, that was some response, wasn't it? Of course, there's different ways of rejecting God's call. Not everybody is like Jonah. I mean, Jonah just said it. That's it. I'm not going. When God's call came to Moses, he had a different response. He said to God, Moses said to God, I can't speak. Why are you sending me? I can't speak. And God knew how to deal with Moses. And he said to him, I've sent Aaron to take care of that. You're still going. And he had to deal with Jonah differently. But it's intriguing, isn't it, that it's probably still the same, isn't it, that God's call to do something can be met with various expressions of refusal. Sometimes a person might just say no. Another time a person may just come up with all kinds of excuses, which initially might seem valid, but the reality is that God would never burden someone to do something if he hadn't prepared for the consequences. So anyway, Jonah, he rejects the call, because maybe he was afraid. I mean, imagine going to Nineveh and saying to this great city, you've got a month to survive. I mean, that was his message, wasn't it? In five weeks' time, you'll be no more. I mean, how would, if somebody went down to London with that message, how would the authorities react to that? Apart from probably arresting Jonah for being slightly mad, they might have uh, assumed, well, he knows something that we don't know, and therefore he's dangerous. So maybe Jonah was afraid. But since the one thing that comes out in chapter one is that Jonah isn't afraid. He's not afraid of anything, is he? Just throw me in the sea. So I suspect his fear was not there. He just didn't want to do it. And that's Jonah 
and his call. But it led to a crisis, didn't it? Because God did not replace him. I mean, in everyday life, if somebody doesn't take a job, then the employer just gets somebody else. But that's not the way God works here, is it? He didn't say to Jonah, okay, that's you dismissed. Instead, he proceeded to arrange circumstances that would ensure that Jonah would fulfill his calling. Of course, if God did choose somebody else, what would that say about his wisdom in choosing Jonah in the first place? It would tell us that God had chosen the wrong man. And that would be a wrong deduction to make. But Jonah tells us something I think is very important. And all of us are called by God to do something. That obeying the call of God can be an adventure. But disobeying the call of God can turn life into a roller coaster. Do we believe that? That obeying the call of God can be an adventure. But disobeying it, whatever it is, can turn life into a roller coaster. Well, Jonah certainly tells us that, doesn't he? You know, and Jonah goes on the run. He he doesn't just um, decide, well, I'll head down to Egypt. It's just across the border. Instead, he purposes to go as far in the opposite direction as he possibly can. He heads off to Tarshish, to Spain. It's further away from Israel than Nineveh is. But he imagines that if he goes to Tarshish, God will not use him there because he flees from the presence of the Lord. Now the strange thing is that in the boat, God is determined that everybody else in the boat will know who Jonah is. God ensures that every person in the boat will know that Jonah is on the run from God's call. Whatever that call is, God will cause people to know somehow that we are not doing what he's called us to do. And we can see that in two ways in the boat. The first one is the storm. Why is a storm sent? Well, lots of different answers can be given to that question. 
But one is, it was sent not to Jonah. I mean, Jonah is sound asleep. He's not aware of the storm. The one man on the boat who is definitely disturbed about the storm is the captain. And the storm comes in a certain sense so that the captain will confront Jonah. Now Jonah may have imagined when he went down into the hold of the ship to sleep that the one person he would not see for the rest of the journey would be the captain. But the one person that he initially sees is the captain. And God brings that man right to Jonah and confronts him for his obvious atheism. Because that's what the captain thinks. The captain thinks that Jonah doesn't want to talk to his God with a small g. So Jonah, on the run, has given this impression to the captain that the true God doesn't exist. And even when he's asked to say something, Jonah says nothing. He doesn't avail himself of the opportunity when speaking to the captain. Well, this is who I am. He just says nothing. And the captain just urges him, find a God to speak to. We could say that that opportunity was given to Moses, sorry, to Joshua, sorry, to, to Jonah, to say who he was. And he didn't take it. But that wasn't the end of the matter, was it? If Jonah voluntarily will not reveal it, then God can bring about a set of circumstances where it will be obvious that he's the problem. And that is seen in the lots that they had to cast. These sailors were pagans. They believed that every problem, everything that happened had some connection to somebody's behavior. And therefore they thought, it's intriguing though. I'm sure there was lots of other boats on the sea at that particular time. But they concluded that the problem for the storm was on their boat. I wonder who gave them that impression. That the problem of the storm in the Mediterranean was connected to someone on their boat. Well, I suspect that idea came from God. He just works in the thinking of people. So they decide to cast lots to find out which person on this boat 
is the cause of this trouble. And the lots, whoever they did it, point to Jonah. And Jonah realizes God has been speaking to him. He's identified who he is, and therefore he's got to say who he is. And he gives a kind of testimony there in verse 9. A reluctant one. I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. She tells him, I belong to a special people. And, of course, the history of God dealing with Israel was well known. The crossing of the Red Sea and so on. It was generally recognized, although people didn't worship him, that the God of Israel was powerful. And Jonah is compelled reluctantly, embarrassingly, to say who he is. Don't know if that's ever happened to us. It's certainly happened to me at times. Because I had somehow or other, for whatever reason, resolved not to say anything. And all of a sudden, find myself a hut. So Jonah has to confess. And... He still doesn't want to go, does he? He's determined not to go. And he asks for the men to throw him into the sea. He'd rather die than go to Nineveh. What a sad state for him to be in. The men themselves... Well, they seem to have been affected. I mean, they realized that God was speaking. And there's this kind of strange incident in the middle of the sea where Jonah, who fears the Lord according to his own words, is at that moment not fearing him. Yet the sailors who up until then had not feared the true God, suddenly start to fear him. And they become aware that they're in the presence of the true God. And they start to call upon the Lord. And they worship him with great fear. As a reminder here, isn't there, that to Jonah, that God can do great things despite Jonah. But anyway, there's Jonah, and he's determined not to go, and he says, just throw me in the sea. And he says, if you do that, there will be instantaneous calm. He's fully aware of why the storm has come. And he says, The God who made the heavens and the earth, 
when you throw me into the sea, will bring immediate peace. And that's what happened. Jonah, the prophet, predicted correctly. But at the moment, he's a rebellious prophet. And he would rather die than do what God wants them to do. How far could Jonah go? He was willing not only to go to Tarshish, but to leave this world. And God is gracious, of course. And he sent this great big fish. We'll be finished in a minute. <clears throat> and as we think of God sending this great big fish, the answer that he gives, God shows what he would use. What can God use to bring a disobedient servant to his senses. He can use anything. Can't he? Well, God chose to use this great big fish. He also chose how long he would use it. Now, I don't know if that whale or not. But I did type into Google and say, how long does it take for a whale to, re to, um, to deal with its food? 18 hours. Jonah's in the belly for three days. He's not there to give the great fish a meal. He's there for another reason. God not only chose how long he'd be in it, but he chose why he'd be there. And Jonah's going to be there to, for repentance. And we'll see in chapter 2 next time that how he does repent. But that tells us that God knows where to take us in order for repentance to become a living reality. I'm quite sure nobody else has had Jonah's experience. Many a person may have been eaten by a great fish, but I don't think any other person repented there. And also, God used this great fish to put Jonah back in the right direction. The fish took him to the spot of land where he could start walking again to Nineveh. God took him back to where he should have been. And that's God's answer, isn't it? He knows what to use. He knows how long to use it. 
and he knows how to bring about repentance and recovery. Who would have possibly imagined that a great fish would do all that? But God is God. His ways are not our ways. So, there's lots of lessons from Jonah, isn't there? Just got a couple to mention, and that is this. God uses weak instruments. Would we have used Jonah? I don't think we would have, would we? But God did. God used a defiant, disobedient servant. Of course, he brought him to repentance. But he still used a defiant, disobedient servant. God is gracious. God is compassionate. God is wise. I mean, Jonah did not realize that in a few centuries' time, his strange experience would be used by the Master himself to illustrate his own sufferings. But God uses weak people. What's the message to us? To all of us. Surely the message is do what God tells you. I mean, that's the message for me, isn't it? But it's the message for all of us. Do immediately what God tells you. No excuses. Obedience. As was said to someone else. Obedience is better than sacrifice. And therefore, if there's one message in the book of Jonah, chapter 1, obedience is an adventure. Disobedience leads to a roller coaster. Shall we pray? <clears throat>